Incoming transmission. The Klingon word of the day is kill. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beam me up. Resistance is futile. They're long and prosperous. Welcome to the Computer Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Comedian, actor, lounge furniture connoisseur, puncher of dragons. It's Mark Viola! Yeah! Mark Viola! <laughs> How you doing, buddy? Hey, buddy. How are you? Oh, I am well. It's very good to see you. It's, uh... Gosh, well, I slept on your couch uh, while I was doing my little trek around the southeast, hitting some shows. That was 2018, I want to say. Yeah, that was like one of the four months I was living in Atlanta for. Yeah, where are you yeah. based out of now? Because you hop, you've hopped around. Uh, I'm based out of my car. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm a full-time road comic. I, I live in my car 10 months of the year, traveling the country, doing shows. Dude, that's awesome. That's the dream, man. Is it? Sure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah kind of. <laughs> it's great being homeless. Yeah. But I mean, from from following your Instagram, it looks like you've got enough supporters that um, there's not too many nights where you have to spend in your car. Yeah. Fortunately, I'm, I'm rarely actually sleeping in my car. Um, uh, as you can tell from the hashtag where Mark is sleeping. I, uh, I'm on, I crash a little bit of everywhere. Nice. Nice. Yeah. It's, um, for folks who don't know, uh, Mark and I met, gosh, this was probably 2017, uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, you were doing a show at coffee underground and I probably was one of the opening acts, I think maybe. It sounds right. I'll say yes. <laughs> yeah. sounds right. If for no reason it's easier and nobody can prove otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, you came in and killed it like you always do. And oh, uh, you're too kind. I mean, you're right. You're <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, we became friends after that. Uh, we found we bonded over something nerdy, probably comic books or Star Trek or something along those lines. Why, why not both? Yeah, probably both. <laughs> and uh, you were kind enough that when I put together like a little, you know what, I'm going to do a you know couple loops around the southeast you were kind enough to let me sleep on your couch and uh show me a couple spots in atlanta yeah no it was, it was good having you and it's it's so rare that i can return the favor that so many kind people have given to me that uh whenever i could i always try to take the opportunity to do that yeah so um so if we met we met in we'll just say 2017 how long had you been doing comedy to that point that would have been six and a half years, seven years, something okay. like that. Cool. And I started in August of 2011. So depending on you know, when in 2017, yeah, probably six-ish years. Nice. Well, according to according to uh, Judd Apatow, you're good at it now, right? <laughs> he says like seven years until you'll be good at this. So you'll, you're definitely in the I'm good at this territory. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how how many years Judd Apatow put in to get to, you know, mediocre, but however many years it takes to get to good at this, that's, that's what I did, I guess. Whatever, one more year than Judd Apatow is, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. It's art, of course. Uh, yeah, it, you know, it's such a tricky thing. I've been lucky enough to have a couple comedians, uh, more locals and just folks that I've, you know, crossed paths with. Uh, and it's such a fascinating it's such a fascinating art form in that there's a thousand different ways to do it, but seemingly it gets smaller and smaller as you try to be more successful. Is that, is that, is that your assessment as well? In a lot of ways. Yeah. There's a thousand ways to do comedy and 994 of them are wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, not, not because there's only like, the traditional way to do comedy it's it has more to do with the fact that people think that 
just doing it differently than other people who they've seen have success just automatically makes them special or more creative or mm. different in some sort of way. Of course. Uh, it doesn't. Like, I mean, yeah. I don't know <laughs> what else to say. I've run into comedians who are like, well, honestly, you know, a, a groan is as good as a laugh. It still means that you, uh, you reach out and you emotionally touch them. I'm like, no, dude, in comedy, a laugh is as good as a laugh. Yeah. <laughs> in drama or horror, a groan may be better than a laugh, but that's not what we're doing. You know, get good. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, just get good. That I think, and you can probably speak to this even uh, more than I could, but I remember after that first wave of, of COVID, the mics opened back up for a very brief window and a lot of, a lot of new comics came out. I think everybody just got a little stir crazy and was just like, you know what? Life is short. I'm going to try this thing. And so many came out with this notion of like, I'm going to be on Netflix in six months. Like it's right around the corner. (laughs) People have had those illusions of grandeur for a long time. Back when I started, it wasn't getting on Netflix. People were like, I'm going to have an HBO special in six months. Before that, there were people who were like, I'm going to be on Comedy Central's Lounge Lizards in six months. Lounge Lizards. Yes. Oh. Yeah. And it goes all the way back to the to some guy being like, "Ah, oh, what are you talking about, kid? No, I'm going to make it a vaudeville in the next six months. Yeah, same man. <laughs> like it, you go back far enough and there's always that thing. Uh, the truth is, is that when it comes to COVID, it depends on where you were in the country. Mm. So, yeah. for example, um, I had to I was I was two and a half weeks away from going on a four and a half month run when COVID hit and all my shows got canceled. <sighs> And I didn't have anywhere to go. So I had to wind up moving back in with my mom. Oh, man. Except that my mom lives in a restricted 55 and over community in St. Petersburg, Florida, that I'm not legally allowed to be at. Oh, dude. So I wound up hiding out in an old folks home for 15 months, just doing my best Anne Frank impression possible, trying not to be seen or heard. Nobody could (laughs) discover me. Like, yeah. Yeah, no, it was rough. It was rough. Um, that being said, Florida being Florida, stuff started reopening in June of 2020. And by July of 2020, my Facebook feed was filled with shows calling themselves things like no masks, all laughs, comedy night. Like, yeah, it was bad. Uh, on the other hand, I know people in Chicago and New York who are who, like, I ran into a couple of comics from New York last week who were just like, yeah, the mics and stuff started to come back about five months ago. And I was like, well, all right. I mean, <laughs> okay. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, no. And uh, there were comics in Ohio who was telling me that like during 2020 and into 2021, like the early before vaccinations were out, stuff started to try to reopen. Yeah, They were getting Facebook messages from people that were like, hi, I'm a comic from New York City. I understand you have an open mic on Thursdays. I was wondering if me and three of my friends could get up. They were like, what are, are you traveling or something? They're like, no, no, no. This is this is the closest open mic to where I live in New York City. Like, this is Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> so they were driving. So yeah, yeah, it's not, that's not a short you. ride either. Yeah, the places where you live, the places where I was living during that time, they reopened pretty quick. And pretty much every professional comedian, professional entertainer at all, musicians, theater actors, magicians, if we want to accept those as people, you know, <laughs> yeah, every type of performer that was out there, the pros pretty much 100% laid up during all of that. Yeah. So, uh, and it was the um, mostly the shall we say the, uh, the not experienced, uh, not usually booked comedians yeah. that were all of a sudden kind of coming out of the woodwork and doing a lot of shows. I remember looking at a lot of flyers and thinking to myself, you have headliner next to your name, but I know you only have three minutes of comedy. So what, is this an eight minute long show? Are you doing the big closing act? How yeah. are we working this out? Yeah. But it is what who's, it is, you know? Who's who's hosting a houseplant? Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so let me ask you, what, what's your first love comedy or Star Trek? Oh, I'm so glad you narrowed that down to those two things. Um, (laughs) that's, that's tough to answer. Uh, I mean, I was brought up with both comedy and Star Trek from a very early age. Fortunately, I was raised by a, uh, uh, doting Jewish mother who loved two things in this world, Mel Brooks and science fiction. Nice. So... (laughs) 
I was exposed to all of that stuff very early, like way too early to understand any of what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I like, yeah, it's both have always played a very big role in my life. Nice. Yeah. I was very much a, uh, I was very much a product of like the late night, like the late night talk show brand of stand-up comedy and like SNL and like sketch comedy type stuff and Looney Tunes, but like from the forties and fifties Looney Tunes. So the two of those kind of combined in addition to my love of Batman comic books in general, sci-fi, it wasn't until I didn't get into Star Trek until um, next gen, but uh, you know, all of that sort of blended together to form Todd A. Davis. Uh, what was your, who, so, so who's your crew? I'm at, I mean, cause I think we're pretty close in age. So I would want to say TNG, but it sounds uh, like you might've been an I, I original would, crew guy. No, I would say my crew is definitely TNG. That being said, you know, I, I absolutely watched original series prior to, and at the same time as that I was born in 85. So okay. Regard, I mean, stuff could have been on the TV and I was a year old. I was too busy pooping myself to actually know like what was going on. Let's not pretend like it's like, oh yeah, no, I crawled out of the uterus and uh, turned on a cable station that was doing reruns of original, like nobody did that. But <laughs> I would say for the most part, especially by the late eighties, early nineties, once one was aware of what they were watching on TV, yeah, it was a little bit of both because original series was still on reruns at that point as well as next gen being on but legitimately original series just kind of seemed like this thing that was on sometimes and the next generation was what was happening right like if i was going to stay up at night and watch a tv show i was putting on next gen yeah so i'd say that was probably my crew yeah what is there a particular character that you identify with most Mm, identify with i need to think about that for a second um as far as characters that uh that had a big impact on me um listen as a man of a certain age deanna troy in those outfits listen let's say we let's not argue that we weren't formed in some way yeah by that particular experience She's, although i've described her as a decider they, yes <laughs> hey young man how do you feel about this <laughs> yes a lot of <laughs> yeah for anybody who's making the argument that people choose whether they're gay or straight that's not true you're pre- you're presented with deanna troy at mm-hmm. the age of like 10 mm-hmm. and you immediately make a decision at that point yes <laughs> or no and then you go on from there exactly <laughs> um you know uh i mean as a younger person i definitely would say data was my favorite character and the person that i identified with the most cool because I was nerdy and weird and you didn't have friends and watch science fiction and like the idea of a robot trying to figure out how to be human. Sorry, Android before people start screaming at their phones, listening to this. Um, (laughs) uh, But the idea of someone trying to figure out what it is to be human and and wanting to fit in, but not quite understanding and Mm -hmm. sort of being in the middle and observing others and trying to make sense of it. I think spoke to a lot of people. I think that that really filled a void that originally Gene Roddenberry thought that Will Wheaton might fill for fans of a certain age. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially since there weren't, there were no children on the enterprise in the sixties, but then, you know, bringing in, you know, Wes, Wes Crusher to kind of be this prodigy aboard the enterprise D was, yeah, it was, it was new ground and next gen had so many new ground type things that they were doing and writing about and talking about. And it was an international crew. It was, well, I mean, the first, the first crew was an international crew as well, but like this one was even more so it was, you know, so many things were cranked to 11. Right. Well, you go from the only alien being on the bridge being one half human. Yeah to having a bridge crew that's represented by one half human and one not human and yeah. one not biological creature. Yeah. It, it was it was definitely a different step. And, and you see as that changes moving forward through Deep Space Nine and into Voyager, how they went out of their way to try to diversify because we were telling different stories at that point, right? Mm. Yeah. Like original series is very much trying to show like, 
this is what humanity can get to and for earth mm-hmm. by next gen they were saying this is what humanity can get to for all species like we can be so far beyond the concept of oh my god one of these guys is russian but we hate the russians that we can get so far beyond to be like oh my god one of these guys is a klingon and they tried to exterminate the entire human race like it was just a different concept of the the rising standards and those approaches you know the type of thing you don't see in certain newer stuff we won't talk about that part yeah part is is that (laughs) i don't know if people are going to be fans of a certain character or relate to a certain character in some way but i think one of the things gene roddenberry really wanted us to walk away with is that we relate to all of these characters yeah on different levels because all of them are a piece of all of us and that was supposed to be the message yeah, absolutely. Very well said. I, you know, and it's funny, it's funny, the more we go into it, and the more I kind of dissect comedy and the comedian, mostly through introspection. Um, I've, and I find that I'm not the only one with these feelings. It's interesting to see comedians relationship to and not just Star Trek, but science fiction in general, and uh, specifically Star Trek's relationship to comedians. There's actually been a pretty decent history of comedians popping up throughout Star Trek. Did anybody stick out to you in your uh, viewing of Star Trek as a whole, comedy-wise? You mean the actors themselves have, being comedians IRL, or you mean the presence of comedians popping up in Star Trek, such as like holodeck characters and stuff like that? I'll say either. Either. Mm. Oof. <laughs> mm. To be fair, there was a lot of one-offs of like, hey, Sarah Silverman's in an episode, but like there's a few characters that made more than one appearance. There are. Uh, I would say, oh God, how am I going to forget his name right now? The, um, from the, ho- uh, the lounge singer comedian from the holodeck in Deep Space Nine. Oh, um, Vic, uh, Vic. Oh. Vic. just say Vic. Vic yeah, is all Vic. that he was called. Yeah, yeah, it's Vic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure nerds aren't like pushing their glasses up and yelling as um actually. Yeah. Uh. yeah. But Vic is, I think, a, a great example of how there were still Vegas lounge acts. There's still Vegas lounge acts today. Yeah. There were still Vegas lounge acts in the 2000s and the 90s and the 80s, right? They made an active choice to hearken back to that very specific time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a big part of the reason for that was to sort of juxtapose how much, in some ways, things don't change, mm. right? Like yeah. we're all looking for the same kind of entertainment and comfort. And I don't just mean comedy although everyone should be looking for that and the best way to do that is to buy tickets to my shows but the (laughs) nicely done but we're we're looking for something that speaks to us on a level of even in the future even in a universe where you can hollow deck yourself into anything yeah we need entertainment we need communal entertainment Mm -hmm. and to juxtapose quark's bar versus Vix yeah. and to put them in two very different time frames, and to show that it's like, we still need these same things. Mm-hmm. And, and comedy and laughter as a group is a core part of that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's something very uh, reassuring, uh, you know, kind of sitting there analyzing the things that the comedian is saying uh, and letting that comedian show you these things or show them to you in a different light or take you down one path only to take a sharp turn and show you just how uh, jarring life is. I think there's something, uh, well, I think they say laughter is actually ex- an expression of, of uh, intellectual superiority, of knowing something something on a different level and it, and it causing a reaction. I may be getting that wrong. I'm most likely getting that wrong, but I think I, there's I mean... something there. I believe that someone said those words out loud. I don't know what weight they carry or how accurate anything (laughs) like that is. Uh, I think laughter is a cathartic release. Very much. Yeah. I think that's where most laughter comes from. Yeah. Which could certainly come from, from that, you know, 
like being of a higher intent, seeing something in a thing that others can't or don't and having it. But I mean, you know, somebody getting hit in the nuts doesn't have all that much higher thought to it. That's true. you, you don't unless need to be able to do data level computation. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, that makes it much funnier. Yeah, like, much alas, funnier. per Uric, I, ooh, oh, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but yeah, no, it's, it's a cathartic release, whether mm-hmm. it comes from uh, something that's internal, whether it comes from something that's external, whether it comes from something shared. Yeah. The, the laughter itself just comes from a cathartic release of, tension and feeling and that's what generates laughter yeah so and i think it's i think it's interesting you mentioned uh juxtaposing uh quarks bar with uh vix lounge and you know seeing those types of things i've i've said on a couple of other shows that uh one of the two main things remaining from vaudeville and in, in my mind and of course i'm sure there's people out there who will correct me but the two remaining elements of vaudeville, I think, are professional wrestling and stand-up comedy. And I, it's interesting to see that from then, uh, you know, juxtaposed to what those things are today and what has changed, but what has not. Um, you know, a buddy of mine, Gary, who works with the National Wrestling Alliance, he's deep dived on all the history of the NWA and wrestling in general. And so much of the lingo and so many of the practices from the circus days are still in use today in the modern era. And that's so funny to me. You know, the idea of a comedian and, you know, strip away the lights, the cameras and, and you know, fancy outfits or, you know, uh, big... You have me. Yeah. Just, just the working road comic standing in front of people talking to a microphone with your thoughts and your art and just pouring it out for a response, usually from strangers. <laughs> always from strangers. Yeah. Almost always from strangers. And in fact, that was some, that was some great advice that I got when I first started out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a couple of experienced comics tell me they're like, whenever you're trying to work on a joke, never ever run it past friends, family, coworkers, anybody who knows you, because there's no value in that. Interesting. Yeah. That's good People, advice. Yeah, people bring all this excess baggage with them when they know you, right? And there could be a million different things going on when you go to, you know, run a bit past them. They could be thinking, because they know you so well, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Or, yeah, no, I definitely could see that happening with you. Or, oh, that is something, that's something he would say. Yeah, definitely. Uh, (laughs) Audiences are made up of strangers. They don't know anything about you. All they have about you, as soon as you walk on stage, is what you look like. And then immediately after that, what you sound like from that point forward, you're introducing yourself. To them. Yeah. Everything you're doing is basically uh, you had to be there joke to a stranger that you don't want to end with you being like, well, I guess you had to be there. Sometimes the there is inside your own mind. Yeah. Right? It's that one square foot of real estate mm-hmm. sitting on your neck. Yeah. Right. But it's still you doing basically you had to be there jokes and hoping that they get it enough to roll with you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I uh, and another part of that that's interesting is to see the old juxtaposed with the new, which uh, kind of embodies the whole thing about Enterprise. It's it's a prequel, but it's set at the end of the TNG era in terms of production. What was your first? Because I assume this episode is not your first episode of Enterprise that you've ever seen. What was your first thought upon watching Enterprise for the first time? Well. My first thought upon watching this episode and then doing this podcast with you is that I just realized that I actually watched an episode of Farscape. So (laughs) I am in the wrong place or I'm in the right place with the wrong information. That's um, all the time we have on the Computer Resume podcast. Thanks for joining (laughs) us. (laughs) It's weird. I skipped Enterprise. I, I can't explain why. I can't explain where. I think it might have had something to do with what what year did Enterprise start? Uh oh two, like two weeks after 9-11. Right. So uh I was going through that. Yeah. Yeah. Um and that would have been immediately followed by my senior year of high school. Okay. So I was in the process of like applying to college and everything like that. And then I was in college. So I 
didn't watch much in the way of any kind of TV mm. for about three, four years. I didn't read a lot of comic books. I stopped playing Magic the Gathering, although that had to do with Mirrodin being released uh, more than anything. Mm. But there was a lot of different hobbies and stuff and recreational media that I didn't watch during that time. And Enterprise fell into that. I didn't go back to Enterprise until probably probably when it first hit Netflix. Okay. Like when it first hit Netflix or, or another streaming platform. I can't remember now. It's been some years. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the first time that it was just like readily available at my fingertips, I was like, oh yeah, I didn't watch this, did I? Because you have that feeling in the back of your head when you consume all the media in a certain media chunk yeah they're like yeah of course i've seen everything yeah of course right like you're like yeah of course i've seen all of it i've been watching i've watched everything that's been part of this for years and years and years and years yeah and then you're just kind of exposed to it and you're like i don't remember anything about this (laughs) hmm and that's kind of how it was with enterprise so i came to it a bit later interesting what did you think about you know the whole the whole setup i mean they have pockets. The ship is kind of like an, uh, kind of like a submarine. Like what was, what was the whole vibe to you? Do you, do you recall? Yeah. (laughs) That's fair. Yeah. It's, it, it seems to be one of the, you know, we talked a little bit about deciders. This is kind of one of those ones. It's a lot of people have negative vibes about it, but they're not sure why. Um, and I'd say there's definitely episodes and small chunks of seasons that I was kind of like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Well, those first two, those first two seasons, you can definitely, when you look at the series as a whole, you can definitely see, okay, there's season one and two, then there's season three and four. And I think you mean like after they actually started putting the word Star Trek in the title. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they got away from the, uh, from the episodic and started going with more two, three, four episode arcs and, you know, having that over, uh, you know, that overarching narrative of the Zindi war and everything that goes along with it. Um, And you can definitely see a shift in the show. Uh, The wife and I were actually just talking about it last night, night before about, you know, because the show started where it did in time with everything that was going on in the world at that time, it's interesting that those shows addressing the current events of the day didn't really hit till the end of season two into season three and four. And uh, I wonder, you know, had that happened earlier, had they had more lead up time, like how would have Enterprise have been different? Or if it hadn't happened at all, what would have what would Enterprise have been then? Um, this episode specifically is unique amongst the rest of the series in that we get small glimpses of what people are doing, but then it's it's pretty much a one man show uh, for for the most part. Uh, well. I'll, well, well, I tell you what, uh, what are your thoughts about this episode specifically uh, before we get into the recap? Well, like I said, I, I actually wound up watching an episode of Farscape. So uh, I felt like John was just hamming it up a little too much this episode, but <laughs> the set action set pieces were, were pretty solid. Um, from what I can remember of, uh, of this Star Trek episode of which you speak, my feelings on it are uh, sometimes you got a bottle episode. Yeah. And you can't episode. hate a bottle episode. There are some series where the bottle episodes are the most standout episodes of the entire series. There's other episodes where the bottle episode serves the purpose of saving enough money so that they could do a big CGI battle set piece at the end of the season, which yep. let's, I mean, we're not there yet. Spoiler alert, everybody. <laughs> There's action set pieces in space with CGI later in this season. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I don't think there's anything bad about this episode. I think that, or, or, I mean, I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with the idea of this episode, I guess mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. Somebody needed a bottle episode. They decided that they were going to do an exploration of flocks. They got somewhere below the surface. I don't think you walk away from this being like, I know that character better than I ever did. Mm-hmm. I think they reflected a lot of what they had already kind of showed about him. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, think i think there were certain things they reached for that they did achieve right they um they showed why like an an example of why so much like the entirety of the alien races in star trek hadn't 
been back and forth and hanging out with the Zindi a lot. Like, hey, why don't you guys just like warp over there and, you know, like put an embassy on their plane, talk it out. You know, it's Star Trek. Like they did, they, you know, they needed to put something in there where it's kind of like, oh no, it's not just like two points in space warp in between them and you get to where you're going. Like they're, they're presenting some of those dangers. They're also showing sort of backhandedly. I don't know if this was their intention or not, but sort of backhandedly uh, showing that this is a not as technologically advanced Star Trek, right? Yeah. And they, they wanted to they wanted to make you feel that throughout Enterprise. When they stepped back in time, they wanted to be like, no, 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 none of this is going to look like you expect it to be. Everything here is going to look old and analog comparatively, and everything like that. You know, things that other shows that that prequel existing Star Trek screw up really badly <laughs> because they have poor set design and dumb showrunners. But that none of that is the point. The point is that <laughs> they wanted to they wanted to elicit this feeling. And I think in this episode, they did that. This yeah. is a very low-tech solution for getting through something. If this if this same sort of situation had happened in any other Star Trek, except for Voyager, where they did the exact same storyline five years earlier. But in mm. any other Star Trek, there would have been this, oh, well, we need we we can use the the tetrasonic MacGuffin and just reverse the polarity. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And they, they, I mean, they're flying around in what is essentially the equivalent of like a Honda Civic. So, <laughs> yeah, radiation and things affect the crew. Uh, yeah. Before, before we get uh, too much deeper. Let's get to this week's recap. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Well, tell your disappointment to suck it. I'm doing a bottle episode. You begin Wednesday on an all-new Star Trek Enterprise. The crew put in hibernation to survive a deadly region of space. And the only one who can bring them back Doctor. is losing his mind. I don't know what's happening. You're not real! Stay tuned for an ending that's beyond belief. Enterprise encounters a trans-dimensional disturbance. And so on. That lies directly along its time-sensitive course to Zadi Prime and the Zindi weapon. The crew also learns that the disturbance causes humans permanent neurological damage. To avoid a two-week detour while preventing danger to the crew, Doc Flox disables the neocortex of all human on board to survive the four-day journey through the disturbance at a reduced speed. With the crew sedated, Flox attends to his extended duties aboard the ship, including caring for Archer's dog, Porthos, who seems to be immune. How convenient. As he does so, he takes the opportunity to compose a letter to an acquaintance. Unfortunately, Flox begins to become nervous and is easily spooked by regular ship noises. In engineering, falsely perceiving movement, he becomes increasingly tense and nervous. While investigating a noise, he encounters T'Pol, who is also carrying out duties while the human crew are sedated, and, as a Vulcan, has been enjoying the quiet contemplation this situation allows her. She commits to spending more time with Phlox. Sucks! Phlox's paranoia escalates to delusions. At one point, he believes that two insectoids have somehow boarded the ship. Great. T'Pol insists there is nothing on the sensors, but humors him by helping him with a deck-to-deck search, which reveals nothing. When Phlox almost shoots Porthos, T'Pol reminds him that it's healthy for his race to use hallucinations to relieve stress. Phlox disagrees until he sees a zombie Hoshi and an awake archer. He finally scans himself and confirms the disturbance is impacting his thinking. He plans to sedate himself and let T'Pol run the ship, but she acknowledges that she's also becoming disturbed. They discover that the anomaly is expanding and that they are 10 weeks rather than six hours from emerging. Oh, no! Both are now easily agitated and distracted, with T'Pol's mind unable to focus on helping as Phlox battles to master the warp drive. Sucks! He succeeds in getting them free. Great. That done, he escorts T'Pol to her room, only to find her sleeping there, having been sedated at the same time as the human crew. With everyone now safe, his T'Pol hallucination disappears. Flock sends his unedited letter to his acquaintance, assuring him that he'll enjoy the story of his hallucinations. So, yeah, uh, we've talked at length about bottle episodes, and you're absolutely right. Uh, before we got into the recap, man, bottles, bottle episodes really kind of 
they're kind of the nails. You, you, you really need a couple of decent bottle episodes to kind of uh, hold a series together, especially, you know, even in something like a sitcom. One of my wife's favorite episodes of Friends, Friends is one of her favorite sitcoms. That's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell her you said so. And she'll be like, screw him. <laughs> but uh, one of her favorite episodes is a bottle episode. And, you know, uh, I think in terms of production, you mentioned that, you know, a bottle episode can save you a lot of money um, in terms of, you know, saving up, you know, some production cost for something big later in the season. Also, in terms of writing and character exploration, you do actually get a chance to uh, experience a little bit more of a particular character or two. Uh, you also look at things like uh, I Am Legend or Castaway, um, Moon. Um, you know, there's a lot of different uh, movies that are one, maybe two actors in a setting and that's it. And sometimes it's just that character study. Um, do you have any other outside of Star Trek? Do you have any other favorite bottle episode type shows or movies? Oh man, uh, some of the best episodes of the absolute, one of the absolute best TV shows of the last 40 years, The West Wing was masterful at doing, but then again, it's Aaron Sorkin. Like Aaron Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin yeah. can just do that. Yeah. Like he could just, he could just pull those out. But yeah. whether it's uh, 17 People, uh, which is the bottle episode with uh, Toby and the president and Leo in the, in the Oval Office uh, revealing, well, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't watched the show since 1999, um, revealing that the president has MS and Toby being the 17th person to know. Yeah. That was a masterful bottle episode. Uh, the one where, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the episode now, but uh, everything goes into lockdown mm -hmm. and people are trapped in different rooms with uh it's basically no exit where oh, they okay. were they're all put in a room with somebody who they don't share a particular amount of on-screen time with outside of that episode mm -hmm. and having to deal with uh the process of working through all of these problems that they themselves are going through yeah uh i mean no exit's another brilliant example of doing that same thing uh so is waiting for godot um but as far as away from stage, going back to TV, uh, MASH did a number of great bottle episodes. Mm -hmm. God, MASH yeah. is such a great series anyway. Yeah, it really is. Uh, you're going to get good. You're, you're generally going to get good bottle episodes out of series that are character centric and character focused. Mm -hmm. Star Trek Enterprise was not that. Yeah, it, it's I, I've said before that I really wish they had had. A comedian in the writer's room because there were a lot of things that you know could have been punched up and just really solidified and i think i i'd love to know the behind the scenes a little bit deeper uh in terms of page to screen of yeah. you know what was the deciding factor and you know what in wrapping that script and then translating it um for camera and i i think I think there were a few instances where things could have been handled a little bit differently in terms of either story or character development, um, or I should say plot and character development that, uh, yeah, would have just really solidified it a bit more. I think Enterprise had a lot working against it. I mean, it's, you know, the bar was set so high by the three preceding series, TNG, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager, that I think they kind of got a green light for a new series without much without much deeper thought than that it was just like hey look we need another star trek go um and someone said how about a prequel and they said fine <laughs> whatever um but yeah. yeah well like like so many things in star trek i think it was an attempt at i should say so many things in star trek up to a certain period of time mm -hmm. that there was this concept of Obviously, we want to make more money. We want to cash in on this IP. But at the same time, we want to say something that best reflects Gene Roddenberry's vision. Mm -hmm. Something that speaks to us beyond just go to space, fight aliens, discover new planet, move to next planet. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I think that at that point, because of how deep and broad Deep Space Nine had gotten, Mm -hmm. and how tall Voyager had gotten. Yeah. They didn't feel like continuing in 
in in the later parts of that timeline was necessarily something that they could do effectively. And I think they felt like rolling back was probably a better approach to it. Mm-hmm. Also, prequels were the big thing back then, right? And especially in sci-fi, you had Star Wars coming out mm-hmm. and everything like that. So they, you know, they were cashing in on on a lot of those things. And yeah. I don't know. I don't think that there was bad intent when they started Enterprise. I don't mm-hmm. think that anybody set out to be like, hey, let's make the uh, l- the least respected Star Trek of this era. Like, I don't think anybody had that particular idea in their mind. Right, right. No but one sets I, out to do a bad job. <laughs> well. Uh, okay, with a few exceptions. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you ever saw Fan Fantastic, but that definitely happens. Oh boy. But I don't know, I think, I, I think when the post post-revisionist history on Star Trek Enterprise is finally written. I think that it'll say that this was an interesting and good intentioned attempt to try and deepen the initial lore and background of Star Trek and Starfleet and the universe in which it exists that just didn't know how to hit the mark. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I and, and I think we're I think we're rapidly approaching that point because I mean, the show is 20 years old. So these episodes hit a little bit differently today than they did 20 years ago, even 5 or 10 years ago. And I think people are starting to see that now because I've in my talking with folks at conventions and whatnot, it's I get a lot of the oh, that's the bad Star Trek, isn't it? And I was just like Honestly, give it a second look because it's a little bit, you know, the world that we are living in now, that mirror that sci-fi holds up to society shows something a little bit different. And I think it, um, I think it is definitely not only a reflection for us to see, but a reflection of where we were at that time, which wasn't that long ago. And it was the same with, it was the same with the original series, like, you know, going into the Cold War Vietnam era, but we were also holding up a mirror of like, hey, 20 years ago, this is where we were during World War World War II. Like, let's not forget these things either. And, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, with varying, I'll just say varying degrees of success, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, we learned a lot, we forgot a lot too. And that's kind of the interesting thing. You know, I, I, I keep running across episodes that are, Hey, this episode is just like they did in TNG or Deep Space Nine, or this is an exact replica of the episode that they did in TOS about, you know, except you switch religion for racism. You know, it's a lot of things like that. And I think it's just kind of, yeah, we really haven't gotten the message. Uh, So we do kind of have to keep telling these stories over and over again to, and maybe it'll sink in. This, This is what we know how to do. This is what we know how to do is to tell these science fiction stories about these people on a ship interacting with new, uh, you know, with new civilizations. And maybe we can learn something. Maybe if we reach, yeah. if we keep telling the story, maybe the percentage of people that actually get it, maybe that percentage will grow and we can start to uh, to make a change. How do you feel about that sort of thing? I mean, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. We can do it with this episode, right? Like this is this is pretty much a shot for shot remake of the Deep Space Nine episode where everybody goes unconscious and Seven of Nine is the only one who can like manage the ship and goes a little crazy and starts hallucinating and everything like that. Like, yeah, like they went back to the well. Yeah. That happens. Yeah. I find and not to make this political, because it's not, <laughs> yeah. but there's this in this, there's this very interesting subsection in Star Trek fandom of far right conservative Star Trek fans. Mm, yeah, and I have no idea what show they're watching. Like maybe yeah. they turned on Farscape and thought that it was Star Trek. I have <laughs> no idea. But there's this there's this group that's just their their opinions on this is that they're like yeah no like you know conservative militaristic like all of these and i'm like what are you talking about yeah, like what yeah. possible world is this that sort of a of a futuristic ideology i mean literally they paint it 
to be like, this is the mirror universe where everyone is a fascist. This is the Star Trek universe where everyone is a socialist. Fascism, socialism, fascism, socialism. And people are just like, yep, Captain Picard, man, he would vote Republican. And it's like, what? Like, yeah. what, what are you talking about? <laughs> I have no idea what you're getting at. And yeah. I think that that speaks somewhat to the way that Star Trek and science fiction reflect us but we also sometimes internalize and reflect it. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So like you were saying, like maybe, you know, keep doing it because maybe that percentage of people who get it will grow. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe, but there's also people who absolutely don't get it. who think they get it is also growing. That's also growing. Yeah. It's, I I recall reading, um, there's a great book about uh, comic books. It's under understanding comics by uh, Scott McLeod who talks about iconography and the more iconic something is, the easier it is for the viewer to project themselves onto it. And I wonder if Star Trek has reached a level of iconography over the last six decades um, where people, where all people are projecting themselves onto these characters and, you know, it's become less about the message and more about finding yourself in that character because i think in the more episodic type structure there's room for that there's not a lot of there's not a lot of through lines with the characters you know a character could be super empathetic in one episode but the very next episode they're kind of cold and distant um we see that i any any thoughts along those lines yeah that's that's just a reflection on writing it's a reflection yeah. on writing and showrunnership yeah right um, I find this to be especially true when it comes to science fiction more than any other particular genre. Mm-hmm. There tends to be two very divergent schools of thought, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's the school of thought that it's like, this is all make-believe. Yeah. And because we, and because it's science fiction, we can just yada, 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 ma- technological MacGuffin, whatever we want anything to be. Right. So in that case, the most important thing is the story and if we need Worf to be like violence isn't the answer in this story to make the to make the point we're trying to make work then we're going to do that and next week he's going to be like violence is always the answer and that'll make that story work and both of those things can exist in the same place at the same time right there's another school of thought that says that um science fiction by its very nature as a reflection of ourselves put into technologically superior usually the future but you know always always with a a technological bent on mm. you know we're 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 technologically better than we are that that there's this concept that the characters don't serve the overall story and the universe the universe serves the characters mm. so the most important thing is character canon character development character growth uh, uh, one place you see this happen a lot is with Doctor Who, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Like the two, yeah. the, the two warring sides of the Whovians are like 60 years of canon, 60 years of canon, 60 years of canon. And the other side is like, no, 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 like you know, whatever they want to do. The doctor's a woman now. And that's, you know, that has, that's, you know, I know that in canon, it's a, that doesn't happen, but it does happen. And that's new canon. We're going to do that now. And 12 regenerations, but there's 14 regenerations, but that's fine because yada, yada and Doctor Who and blah. And those two warring sides will continue to butt heads. Yeah. And none of it has anything to do with Doctor Who. Right. It has to do with two different groups of people who expect something very, very specific out of their science fiction. Because mm. you'll see that same split along a lot of those same lines between the people who are like, no, we, we don't want overarching stories. We just want Monster of the Week. Yeah. We just want Monster of the Week stuff. Maybe like, you know, in the old style of Doctor Who, where it might be a three episode arc, it might be a two episode arc, it might be a four episode arc, but it's basically monster of the week. And then there are the people who are like, no, 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 we want one contiguous story that goes over three, four seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, because they're looking for something different from their science fiction. How does that reflect in Star Trek? Well, we're seeing a lot of that coming up now with modern Trek, with new Trek. Mm hmm. Uh, where there is that huge disconnect between what's more important is, is Star Trek a story driven science fiction with characters mm-hmm. or is it a character driven science fiction with a story? Yeah. Yeah. Is, do you think there's, 
Do you think there's room in a franchise for both versions? I do, but that is a very, 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 very tough bar to clear. Yeah. And I don't think that most writers and showrunners are up to that sort of a task, especially over like multiple seasons, five, six, seven seasons mm-hmm. of being able to do that. Yeah. I don't think that uh, that your everyday run of the mill writer's room can achieve those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that any of the people, any of the producers, any of the movers and shakers behind Star Trek want that. Yeah. I think that especially with New Trek, what they want is to sell a very specific particular thing and make that the IP. Mm. And whether you love it or you hate it, I think that they're doing it for reasons that have nothing to do with the story, the canon, the characters. The, the I mean, they, they want to be able to sell Lego ships to little kids. They want to be able to have people tweeting about how, you know, awesome their new concept is they want free media and they want people to buy subscriptions to paramount plus and i think somebody somewhere did did polling and a, and a bean count and decided this percentage of old trek fans will roll with us this percentage will be like no and this group that'll be new trek fans are higher than what we would get out of the old trek fans so we're going to take it in a different direction and that's just how it's going to be I don't think that they necessarily sat there and they went artistically, what would be the best direction for all of this stuff that we're doing? I don't think that really entered into their concerns. And I know that for a fact because they had JJ Abrams do the Star Trek movies. I know that for a fact because when discovery first came out, they got rid of the showrunner who was a huge Star Trek fan and had all of these things that he wanted to do with Star Trek and replaced them with three people who admitted publicly, they never liked Star Trek. They never watched Star Trek. They didn't enjoy Star Trek. J.J. Abrams, oh yeah, they, they hired me to direct and, sh- and write and show run the new rebooted Kelvin Universe Star Trek movies, and I'm not a Star Trek guy. I'm doing this to as a, as a proof of concept that I can do Star Wars movies. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, why they would take that sort of a direction, I have no idea. I can't speak. I, I can't speak intelligently about why that decision was made. Because I don't think it was an intelligent decision. Right. But some bean counter somewhere decided that's the way it was going to be. And that's the way it is. So here we are. Yeah. Now, uh, with this episode, I, you know, we've, we've spoken at great length about, uh, you know, sort of the behind the scenes and, you know, wondered about the, wondered about the, you know, the production side of it. But how do you feel that uh, the performances here, mostly from Jolene Blalock and uh, John Billingsley, um, how do you think they stack up, you know, when they're, when they're flying solo well, as, listen, as opposed never, to being part of an ensemble? You're never going to go wrong with John Billingsley. He's, he's pretty I mean, awesome. Yeah. The, the, the guy can act his way out of a wet paper bag. Like this guy, he knows what he's doing, right? Yeah. Like I wouldn't be worried about that at all. It, I don't think it was a failure on his part to carry the story pretty much solo. Mm. Um, I think, uh, he is limited, in what he can do by the nature of this. This isn't the type of thing where there's a lot of room for actor choices. Yeah. You know, you hear, you hear actors talk about, you know, as, you know, making choices that even if they're sticking word to word on the script, they make those acting choices, those decisions. Like there was not a lot of room for that. This was a bottle episode that he, that they just needed to get through. Right. Also, I mean, the guy did a great job and he, he did through the entire series really playing the character and being as expressive as possible under makeup. Yeah. Right. And anybody who's worn those old school, well, not old school, but like middle old school, what we would call today from 20 years ago, right. old school, like prosthetics and everything will tell you it's hard. Like Michael Dorn, like made it, tried to do the best he could with, expressive facial movements and eyebrows without without squeezing his forehead because otherwise his ridge would pop off like yeah there's only so many things <laughs> you can do he was teeth acting yeah <laughs> uh, yeah very very chompy but yeah <laughs> because he needed to be and i think you know they they did what they could with it um uh i do remember the first time that i watched this episode I didn't find the T'Pol reveal to be too shocking. I felt there was something wrong with it because mm-hmm. throughout it, she's 
being a little too illogically supportive. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh yeah, no, you should totally give in to your hallucination. That's good for your species. <laughs> what? It's good for my species to 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 allow like fantasies and 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 incongruencies incongruencies in my mind to just run amok like that's good what (laughs) that doesn't seem right at all for me like for me it was that the it was the fact that we never see her touch anything like we never see her push yeah there was never see her do any of that stuff yeah and that's you know sharp-eyed viewers are like watching some of that stuff also yeah um alt additionally like we're 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 not led to believe from the earlier stuff that that they made a distinction that the enterprise made a distinction that it's like oh yeah no to Paul and Flocks are the only ones who can stay like they they were very specific about it where they were like every other person on this ship has to be put in this yeah. um, it is only my alien physiology they didn't say anything like oh yeah human physiology doesn't work for this they were like oh no only Flox's alien physiology allows him to go through this and yeah. everything and then she just sort of like pops up and he's at no point yeah. like what There's no question just, about like, it <laughs> yeah <laughs> like uh yeah no i mean it's the little tricks that writers try to pull which i'm not i'm not mad at him right i'm not mad at him at all you know well, I think that leads us to uh, our section that we've lovingly titled "Who Do We Blame?" Uh, this episode. Well, before was... we go into that, yeah, uh, I did have one fun little thing that I don't know if you noticed. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, this is the only time that this happens in the whole of Enterprise, and it and it is based on a reference to the original series. Ooh. Um, uh, um, something with Archer? Nope. I don't know. Why I'm a physician, not an engineer. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. It is the only time in the series that he drops a McCoyism. <laughs> Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Oh. I, I picked up on it, and I was like, that's not a thing that he does a lot. Like, they don't do a lot of callbacks like that and everything. And so I looked it up online to see if there's anything, and it was an IMDb trivia that this is the only time in the series wow that he does that oh that's wild uh, we'll have to do uh we'll have to do a little uh quote image for our instagram uh my wife has started doing quotes from the show so we'll have to who said it <laughs> mccoy or flocks <laughs> right so i think that brings us to our section that we've lovingly titled who do we blame this episode was written by chris black whose last episode was season three episode 13 proving ground and uh, this episode was directed by Roxanne Dawson, a.k.a. Bellana Torres from Star Trek Voyager. Uh, the last episode she directed was season three, episode 12, Chosen Realm, which we discussed with author and podcaster Kevin C. Neese back on episode 58. He is the author of uh, The Gospel According to Star Trek. That was a very fascinating discussion about where religion and Star Trek specifically intersect. Uh, highly recommend checking that one out. Uh, Mich- Michelle Erica Green of Trek Nation said, as bottle episodes go, it's a beautifully done, satisfying episode. Uh, in 2011, Star Trek Magazine rated Doctor's Orders one out of five. It's, uh, I think that's a little harsh. And named it the worst episode of the season. I think that's very harsh. <laughs> yeah, there's way worse stuff happening in yeah, Enterprise yeah. than that. <laughs> So uh, obviously like the theme song. Yes. I was about to get to that. What are your thoughts? Do you Mark Viola have faith of the heart? (laughs) Well, I'll be honest. It's been a long road. I, uh, I don't know who made that decision. I don't know how they weren't immediately fired. And I don't know how they kept making that bad decision for that many seasons. Yeah. But there it was. The wife and I have, uh, I think we've come to the conclusion that it the answer is somebody's nephew. You can just say somebody's nephew. And uh and that has to be. We were actually going to do um we were actually going to do a uh comedic skit where my wife and I play marketing executives who are tasked with coming up with the new Star Trek Enterprise theme song and we just we, we get presented all of these great things and we're like, no, that won't work. That won't work. That won't work. And we finally come to faith of the heart and we're like, perfect. 
Um, so any other uh, final thoughts? Uh, well, first of all, Mark Viola, is this episode doctor's orders? Is this essential viewing? If somebody is sitting down watching Star Trek for the first time, and they're going to go through uh, an essential watch list of the entire franchise, is this episode on that watch list? This episode deserves to be on a watch list, not <laughs> that watch list. Okay. No, uh, yeah, I mean, if 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 you were going through, if you were clicking through Paramount Plus and you accidentally double click next episode and skip to the one after this, I don't think anyone would be in any way aware that that happened. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's not so. like it becomes a crucial plot point five episodes. Spoiler alert: if you're watching this episodically along with the podcast, but it's not like it becomes a plot point five episodes from now when they were like, "Oh man, oh good, uh, oh that good, the, the good thing we were all unconscious." We yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it's it's a bottle episode that's totally skippable. So yeah, yeah, uh, I I I'm fond of bottle episodes, but that's a personal preference in terms of Star Trek as a whole. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't. Th- I think you can skip this one and still get the you know gist of where everything is going. Um, any other final thoughts about this episode, about Enterprise, about Star Trek as a whole, as about your experience on this podcast? No. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, my, my, my final thoughts on this episode are it exists. If you're a Star Trek fan, you're not, and it's your first, if you enjoy Star Trek and it's your first or second time watching through, you may not skip every episode. If it's your third, fourth time through rewatching series, then this one's totally skippable. Yeah. It's not bad. It didn't make me feel dead inside. It wasn't the episode of Voyager where they turned into giant salamanders. So <laughs> like I didn't Right. You know, it at no point did T'Pol or Flocks try to have sex with a ghost. Like worse things happen in Star Trek <laughs> than this true. episode. <laughs> but let's not pretend like this is a pivotal moment. Um my thoughts, my final thoughts on Enterprise. Um in the grand scheme of Star Trek, it's not the absolute it's not one of the absolute must watch series, mm-hmm. but it has its points. It certainly has good times. Not unlike the meme that I sent you before we started this. Right. Sometimes right. you're watching it. You're thinking to yourself, is this a really good episode of enterprise or a really bad episode of quantum leap? <laughs> so good. Enterprise is fine. There's nothing particularly wrong with it. I don't, I don't get mad when I'm having a star Trek discussion and someone mentions enterprise like, Oh, that's not star Trek. <laughs> it's cool. Um, Star Trek as a whole, um, I think somebody needs to step in, take the reins, and create a better direction for the entirety of Star Trek. I need to, I think they need to figure out what is canon, what isn't canon, and try and stay on top of that. I think they need to um, better encapsulate this for everyone. I don't think that alienating old fans and telling them to go screw themselves uh, in the hopes of getting new fans is a good business model uh, for something mm-hmm. that's this broad that has this much um, appeal, especially because the hope should be that if somebody likes the brand new series that they're doing, they'll go back and watch all the old Star Trek and buy the old Star Trek merchandise and play the old Star Trek games and, you know, yeah. make their friends get together for the for old star trek board game night and everything like that uh-huh. and if they if they're only here because man they really love lower decks you're not really going to create star trek fans out of that you're only going to get people who like one cartoon show that's ridiculous right um so my thoughts on star trek as a whole is that they need a better direction and they need a more cohesive direction that's fair. Uh, was there anything else you wanted my general opinion on? I'm here to offer them. I'm full of opinions. <laughs> I am. I am basically a hot take machine. Well, so. I tell. I tell you what. We're gonna save the hot takes for uh, the post post show discussion, and hopefully, uh, folks listening to this will uh, go subscribe on Patreon so that you can get the uncut episodes and hear us ramble about D and D and everything wrong with everything in the world. <laughs> Uh, But next week, we will be joined by comedian Mike Kaplan to discuss Enterprise Season 3, Episode 17, Hatchery, which of course is available exclusively on Paramount+. 
Mark, where can people see you do stand up and support you and check you out online? Well, you can see me do stand up pretty much anywhere where you live. I travel the country all year long for dates, times, locations. You can go to my website, markbiolacomedy.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash markbiolacomedy. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at markbiolacomedy. You can follow me around in my car. I'm homeless and I'd like to make a caravan protesting bad Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of like those other caravans, except with an actual point. Really, if you put in Mark Biola comedy pretty much anywhere, you'll find a little bit of me from YouTube to Pornhub to wherever you need me to be. I am findable. So please do find me online. Come out to a show. Let's laugh. Let's talk Star Trek afterwards. It'll be a good time. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials from all of us at the Computer Resume Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in 10 forward. Like, rate, review, and share on all your favorite platforms. Feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computerresumepodcasts at gmail.com or at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Computer Resume podcast was created and produced by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Our logo was designed by Will Martin and Justin Bishop. The opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop, and our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn, and the voice of Computer Resume Podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We probably got some phasers and shuttle pods, and we're going to find a brand new race. How's that for a slice of fried gold?